0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found on my podcast website, and that's bigamateurism.com. And then you can also check out my blog at cagerredux.com, dot xcom Wow, today's a big day. It is June 21st. It is now about 1 p.m. Eastern Time, and I have just finished reading and partially rereading the United States Supreme Court's unanimous opinion in the Austin case, in which they affirmed the district court and Ninth Circuit opinions that held that the big-time conference players, the Power Five, are permitted to offer certain education-related benefits. And if you've been following the podcast that I've spent a a lot of time on this Austin case, and I've done, uh, I think, nine episodes now, four before Austin to prepare for the oral argument, which occurred on March 31st of 2021, just a couple months ago, and then five after the oral argument to analyze it. So I would say that to fully understand the implications of the Supreme Court's decision today, its opinion today, you really need to understand the background and the history, not just of the suit, but the market context in which it arose. And that really goes back to the 1950s and the first time that the NCAA fixed the price of labor through a uniform agreement on the cost of an athletics scholarship. But I'll do another episode or two where I really break down in detail the issues that came up. But right now I'm going to paint with broad strokes and just talk about the high points and then some gut reactions that I had. So this was a a unanimous opinion, 9-0, to affirming the decision of the Ninth Circuit that upheld this injunction that permits education-related benefits. Neil Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, delivered the opinion of the court. And I think that's important too, because as I mentioned in some of my early episodes after oral argument, Gorsuch is very low-key. And he's very uh, circumspect, and he doesn't engage in hyperbole. And he likes to look at both sides of the issue. He's a very kind of down-the-middle jurist in that sense. So the tone of the majority opinion really reflects Gorsuch's approach and his gentle hand. He really had a soft touch. But there were some really important things that came out of the majority decision that are bad for the NCAA. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the things that were bad for the NCAA, the things that I think might be beneficial to the NCAA. And then I want to talk about Brett Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. So it was a unanimous decision, but a justice can write a separate opinion if there's something that wasn't thoroughly addressed in the majority opinion, they can talk about that separately while joining in the opinion of the court. And that's what Brett Kavanaugh did. And it's a really interesting concurring opinion that I think has value. And uh, it may be of symbolic value in terms of the ruling of the court, but I think it has practical value in terms of what might happen in Congress and how the public perceives big-time college sports going forward, and I'm just so happy that Justice Kavanaugh wrote that concurring opinion, and we'll we'll talk about that. I think there may be some legal issues with uh, some of his speculation about what could happen in the future, but that's for another episode. So anyway, what did the NCAA lose here? Number one, they lost their quest for antitrust immunity, or at least a judicially created antitrust immunity. As I said in some prior episodes after, I think this was in the Austin guessing game where I was looking at options, I said, look, the NCAA, even if it loses on antitrust immunity, it can always go to congress so it has had two bites at that apple it has pursued both bites of that apple and now it only has one bite left so it has nothing in the federal judiciary that's gone and it can always go back to congress and on that antitrust immunity i just want to point out that the NCAA tried to get at that two ways in its briefing in Austin. I believe the only reason that the NCAA appealed the Austin decision to the Ninth Circuit and then to the U.S. Supreme Court was to get the antitrust immunity in front of the Supreme Court. And I'll say this, in the majority opinion, as circumspect as Justice Gorsuch is, there were some, I think, hidden darts directed at the NCAA on this notion that they pursued the appeal and the uh, analysis didn't really warrant the appeal, and I think what they were, what the majority was saying without coming out and saying it, is that the NCAA really didn't have any reason to appeal this case on the merits of the antitrust analysis which means of course as i have said all along the sole reason that they pursued this case was to get an anti complete antitrust immunity so they tried to wrap that up in two ways one was saying that uh, because college sports is so special that it's completely outside the scope of antitrust laws. That's the most clear-cut case for antitrust immunity that you can articulate, yet the NCAA still denied that that's what they were doing in the Supreme Court. Then they had these two backdoor ways where they said, well, okay, even if antitrust laws apply and even if we're subject to the rule of reason analysis, in that fact-based analysis, we get this little bump up through a deferential abbreviated review or a quote-unquote quick look review where all the court needs to do is look at our stated justification for the compensation limit, and if it relates in any way to amateurism, we get this wide berth under this 1984 Board of Regents decision, and you don't even have to really look at this case. You just uh, trust our characterization of it as an amateurism-based compensation limit or eligibility rule, and you just stamp it, NCAA wins, and then it's next case. And the U.S. Supreme Court said no, hell no to that. And one of the most important things to come out of this is that the NCAA is not special. And that was stated explicitly in the majority opinion. And Justice Kavanaugh built his concurring opinion around that. The NCAA does not get special treatment just because it says it should. And its role as the guardian of the amateur ideal and all this stuff, as seductive as it may be, doesn't relieve the NCAA from complying with the Sherman Act or any other federal free competition laws. The NCAA is like any other business in that respect, and that is really important. And it really undermines the NCAA's chest-pounding and all their bluff and bluster and kind of arrogant portrayal of the importance of their interests. You're not that important, NCAA. You're not that important, Mark Edmund. You're not that important, Power Five conference commissioners. You're not that important, Power Five university presidents. You're just not that special. So the court said that you have to apply a full rule of reason analysis. So the NCAA doesn't get immunity. They are subject to antitrust scrutiny. And when they engage in anti-competitive behavior, they have to defend it in a full rule of reason antitrust analysis, which is a full-blown fact-intensive inquiry into the specific market in which the antitrust challenge arises and the specific conduct of the market actors and the interests of the market actors. You don't get to just bump and run and say amateurism wins and not have to prove that that your market behavior doesn't violate federal antitrust law. And the opinion talks about the thoroughness with which the district court conducted its factual analysis. And that's really what the athlete's lawyer, Jeffrey Kessler, was arguing, that this is a fact-intensive analysis. It can't be resolved in any kind of summary way under these offshoots of antitrust analysis, whether it's the quick look or the abbreviated deferential review, whatever you want to call it. This kind of case requires a full inquiry into the facts and context of the market participants and their relationship and the market behavior. Let's see, what else? So the other thing that's really important here, so the NCAA has been gaslighting courts and Congress and the public since 1984, that the Supreme Court had essentially endorsed its conceptualization of amateurism, and that when faced with amateurism-based compensation limit challenges or eligibility rule challenges, all the NCAA had to do was hold up this language, this dicta, this kind of offhand observation from the Supreme Court in the 1984 Board of Regents decision, and they win. And in, in most cases, that worked. And the NCAA has been extraordinarily successful defending its amateurism-based compensation limits over the years. I've talked about that at length. And Justice Kavanaugh stated that out loud in his concurring opinion. And that was important, too, because he was suggesting that the NCAA has been getting away with this BS for decades And in my judgment, that goes back to the 1950s. There's been a conscious, purposeful, calculated, cynical gaslighting campaign by the NCAA and all their financial and institutional stakeholder beneficiaries to convince the rest of the world that amateurism is special and that the NCAA simply is above the law when it comes to its regulation of college sports that's dead that argument is dead and specifically with respect to the language that's in this Board of Regents decision that the NCAA has clung to like a life raft the majority opinion said no you're wrong first of all it wasn't relevant to that case because remember that case involved some big-time football interests challenging the NCAA's monopoly over televised football and They said that it froze them out of the market, that it was anti-competitive under the Sherman Act, and the US Supreme Court agreed. That was a business-to-business transaction, essentially. And it really didn't involve principles of amateurism. And the NCAA didn't really argue amateurism as a justification for its uh, anti-competitive behavior with those exclusive contracts. And the US Supreme Court struck that contract down. And it left to the free markets the future of uh, big time college football, and that one decision is I think still even comparing it to this Austin decision today, the most consequential legal decision in the history of college sports because it fundamentally changed the marketplace and this whole commercialized, professionalized market that exists now. That was a factor in the court today saying you can't really look at market circumstances from 1984, but those market circumstances exist because of Board of Regents and the freedom that the financial freedom that big time football achieved in, in that case. But relying on Board of Regents, these offhand comments, is dead. That's a dead letter. You're done with that. The other thing that the court said, and I was saying this all along as well, is that the NCAA grossly mischaracterized the injunction in this case. They were going on about uh, $100,000 internships and luxury automobiles and all these things that they claimed could be provided within the four corners of the district court's injunction that permitted education benefits, and those were lies from the very beginning and there is no way that you could read that injunction order to to permit those extreme exaggerations And that's just the NCAA doing what it does in its fear-mongering campaign, lying about what the law actually says or what the circumstances actually are or what the facts really are to try to get people scared. You get them scared, and then you get them where you want them, and then you just have your way with them. And when you're relying on these fluffy principles that are so appealing, like amateurism and the collegiate model and the student-athlete and all that stuff, You get away with it. The U.S. Supreme Court called the NCAA's BS on their mischaracterization of this injunction order, and they described it as quite limited and modest, which it is. And as I said before, it's purely permissive. Schools don't have to offer these education benefits if they don't want to. The conferences don't have to approve that if they don't want to. So that that was just grossly overblown. The other thing is that they talk about the NCAA's justification of its compensation limits. And remember, the fundamental defense that the NCAA made to its amateurism-based compensation limits was that there is a consumer preference for amateurism itself, and that if we allow additional payments or an open market, then consumers are going to flee, and The court responded to that in two ways. One, they adopted the district court's conclusion that the NCAA, despite now 12 years, actually it's more than that, it's 15 years, going back to the White case in 2006, the NCAA has been unable through those three lawsuits and two substantial trials and half a billion dollars in legal fees and settlements, to offer an intelligent, coherent definition of amateurism. They can't do it. And I talked a a lot about that in my episode on amateurism, so you might want to check that out too. And then the second thing is that even if amateurism had some practical value and could be defined, there was zero evidence that consumers had a preference for that itself. And that is proven by the fact that since the O'Bannon decision, the NCAA, in response to O'Bannon, or out of fear because of what the O'Bannon court might have done. And that's really where all this autonomy legislation came in that I've also talked quite a bit about. But all these additional benefits, the full cost of attendance scholarship, the four-year scholarship, the increased food, and all, all this stuff, those increases have not only not stifled the consumer demand for college sports. But consumer demand has skyrocketed after those additional forms of compensation were permitted. They're modest, no doubt. But it undermines the NCAA's next penny argument that it always makes in its effort to fair marker. And that is that the next penny that an athlete gets paid above the full value of his athletic scholarship is going to be the penny that brings college sports to a fatal collapse. And they're playing that card right now and have been in the United States Senate on this name, image, and likeness debate. And again, the last few episodes, I've been talking about that in detail. And then, let's see, the other thing that came up that I don't think is very good for the NCAA is that in, in the discussion about the propriety of the district court's injunction, there seemed to be more trust placed on the conference side than on the NCAA side. And that really manifested itself, I think, in how the Power Five separated their interests during their campaign in the Senate. And... How, for the first time in all this antitrust litigation where the NCAA has carried the laboring ore in Austin, for the first time in the US Supreme Court, the conference defendants filed a separate brief. And they were making the same arguments, but they were stepping to the side a little bit from the NCAA, and I address that in my Prisoner's Dilemma episodes, because that dynamic is going to determine the future of college sports, and we don't know how that's playing out behind the scenes. And there have been cracks in the foundation of the relationship between the NCAA national office and the Power Five that were really exposed during COVID, and they are right front and center right now, and you're seeing some of that, in how the NCAA and Power Five are both readjusting to what's happening in Congress on this name, image, and likeness debate. And I can promise you, this case today does not help the NCAA's case at the conceptual level, but the NCAA will, no doubt. When they renew their efforts in Congress, they're going to say, look, we need this. This is essential. The Supreme Court didn't say that it wouldn't help us. They said it might be okay, but but they're not going to give it to us. So only you can give it to us. I think that's what you're going to hear about antitrust immunity. So now let's look on the other side of the coin. Let's look at what the NCAA may have gotten from this decision. So the first thing is that this decision was limited to the four corners of the district court's injunction and the Ninth Circuit's affirmance of that injunction. And the court was very clear in its ruling that it was to be interpreted and viewed within that limitation. And that is a big, big limitation because, as I've talked about at length and written about at length in my blog, the athletes abandoned On their appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, any claim that they were seeking an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services. And this goes back to that question that Justice Sotomayor asked of the uh, athlete's lawyer, Jeff Kessler. She wanted to make very clear and get it on the record that the athletes had abandoned that position, which was the position they took in their original lawsuit. And it was the entire purpose of their original lawsuit. But because of this abandoned limitation, they had to change their strategy. And they wound up with something that got them to an ostensible remedy. It's not a very good one because I don't, think it's going to have much benefit to the athletes because it's so limited. But it got them to attorney's fees. And so the other thing that's great for the plaintiff's attorneys here is that they're walking away with, I think, uh, between 80 and $85 million. Not a bad payday. And the NCAA is not going to be able to go back to the district court and say, hey, we won. We won this one. Like they did in O'Bannon. It's just stunning. So We have a very limited ruling in terms of the context in which it was issued, even though it bumps up against some of these larger issues. So let's see, what else did the NCAA get from this? And again, I mentioned this earlier. I want to talk about it a little bit more. But in this dysfunctional Ninth Circuit framework and challenges to NCAA compensation limits, the O'Bannon court really deferred in the Ninth Circuit a ban court really deferred to the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism, not as a pro-competitive justification, but as an independent justification that kind of transcended antitrust analyses. And I have to really fly-spec the opinion, but I don't think they addressed that. And remember, at oral argument, the United States intervened. So the United States decided that it had an important interest to assert, and they were arguing that the NCAA should not be entitled to antitrust immunity. They thought the NCAA should be treated as any other corporate entity in America. But the United States, through its Solicitor General, acting Solicitor General, Elizabeth Prelogger, was very good and very clear on the ways that the NCAA had pulled amateurism as a pro-competitive justification in the rule of reason analysis out of that uh, framework as an independent, freestanding, normative principle that basically made the NCAA immune from antitrust laws. The Ninth Circuit essentially did that very thing in its O'Bannon decision and at the very last minute pulled amateurism out as this firewall to an open and free market for the value of the athlete services and they came up with this education, non-education related distinction. That distinction was carried into the Austin uh, case. And remember, Austin is in the Ninth Circuit. So Judge Wilkin was bound by the Ninth Circuit's opinion in O'Bannon. So this dysfunctional framework just gets swept into the Austin analysis. And then the Supreme Court doesn't address it. And it wasn't really briefed. And because the athletes waived their claim that they were going for an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services, the United States Supreme Court didn't really have to look at O'Bannon. And they didn't. So we have this still, what I believe, is a qualified antitrust immunity in the Ninth Circuit. And if there are challenges in other circuits and they choose to adopt what the Ninth Circuit did and what was blessed by the U.S. Supreme Court under these facts, in this context. And again, because of the nature of antitrust rule of reason analyses, this decision doesn't answer the question in any other potential challenge. It just provides the ground rules for it because of the fact-intensive nature and the context-driven nature of the rule of reason analysis. But because this O'Bannon framework has just been swept in and Austin has been approved by the United States Supreme Court, I would expect any cases in other circuits to follow the O'Bannon-Austin framework out of the Ninth Circuit, and that has substantial benefit to the NCAA because it does prevent an open and free market for the value of the athlete services. So the other thing, though, in that regard, is that because of the limited nature of the ruling, And the limitations of the scope of the relief as framed by the parties, this language in the opinion that says, yeah, don't read too much into this beyond the four corners of this case, these facts, and this injunction, I think the court was by implication also saying, don't rule out the possibility that we could go further and maybe knock down some amateurism-based compensation limits that aren't related to education. And that was really the focus of Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion. So let's see. I think that's really the pluses and minuses for the athletes and the NCAA and institutional stakeholders. So let me now turn to the Kavanaugh concurring opinion. He addresses some of the elephants in the room. And he bumps up against race. And I think that's really important. And then he also bumps up against the NCAA's fundamental inability to look at their business model realistically through the lens of the realities of the world in the 21st century, not just the sports world. And it's within that context that I think you get a sense of how the justices may be thinking behind the scenes. They took all this in, they read the record, and when you read the record and you read the evidence and you look at Judge Wilkins 104 page opinion, and then you compare that to the propaganda that the NCAA has been putting out, not just in the Austin case, but in every litigation that it finds itself, in every interaction with the federal government, whether at the executive level or the legislative level, in every aspect of their relationship with state legislatures, and in the court of public opinion through their public relations, the NCAA is not an honest institution. And Supreme Court justices are very careful about how they word things. But this concurring opinion is pretty sharp in my experience as an appellate attorney. And it was clear to me that Kavanaugh, in looking at this balanced kind of Gorsuch approach, this on the one hand and on the other hand, which I think reflects Gorsuch's style, I think Kavanaugh wanted to tip the scales a little bit towards the uh, fact that there could be future liability here for the NCAA. And maybe there should be. So the NCAA is complaining about all these antitrust suits, but it's the very antitrust suits that they're trying to deprive the athletes of having in the future that brought us to this Supreme Court decision. And that is so important to keep in mind because the NCAA is running to Congress and saying, oh, antitrust laws, antitrust laws. You know, we're going to die if we have to face this malicious and frivolous litigation. That's the propaganda machine. And they were saying the same thing about Austin. And they said that about O'Bannon. And they said that about white. They say it in every context where their ideas, their philosophies are challenged. And this also goes back to this, you're either 100% with us or you're 100% against us. And that's the way the NCAA thinks. And they take that thinking into every encounter they have with the outside world, including decision makers that will have substantial influence over what college sports looks like. And the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have been content to let the NCAA try to get away with that. And all it's done is generate ill will. And the university presidents have basically punted. They're in hiding right now. The conference commissioners just want more money in their pockets, their $5 million a year salaries, and Mark Emmert's $4 million a year salary, which Justice Kavanaugh explicitly addresses in his concurring opinion. So Mark Emmert's like, my salary's not relevant. Yeah, it is relevant. It's relevant for a number of reasons, but primarily because it shows that you have a massive conflict of interest when you are saying that these athletes shouldn't be paid or treated fairly when you benefit from the unfair treatment. And that money that would be going to those athletes is going into your pocket and buying your estate homes and your $50,000 cars and your jet setting in the private NCAA jet all over the country, perhaps all over the world. Who knows? Because you haven't been subject to a forensic accounting. But I think when these justices were faced with the reality, a fact-based reality that peaked under the hood of the NCAA's justifications for its business model. It was so distasteful that they came out with a unanimous decision and then a concurring opinion that basically says to the NCAA, you really need to rethink your business model and your relationship to these athletes. But guess what? They're not going to do it. And when I finish with this examination of Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, I'm going to go to a statement that was released this morning at 11.38 a.m. on the NCAA website website. It is a terse up yours from Mark Emmert. So I'm just going to read from Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, and I'm going to comment as I see necessary or helpful. So Justice Kavanaugh begins, the NCAA has long restricted the compensation and benefits that student athletes may receive. And with surprising success, the NCAA has long shielded its compensation rules from ordinary antitrust scrutiny. Today, however, the court holds that the NCAA has violated the antitrust laws. And I want to say just in that initial framing, Justice Kavanaugh is really making an important point when he says that the NCAA, with surprising success, has been shielded from compensation rules and ordinary antitrust scrutiny. What he's saying is that the NCAA has been getting away with murder for years. And remember, the last time that the United States Supreme Court weighed in on the uh, NCAA's business practices and market behavior and business model was in 1984, 40 years ago. And a lot's changed since then. And basically what Kavanaugh is saying, you, you've been getting away with murder, that's over. As of today, that is over. And then he also has to acknowledge, and again, this goes back to what I've said all along about how the advocates frame this case and the fact that the athletes abandoned the purpose of their initial lawsuit in seeking an open and free market for the value of the athlete services and striking down all NCAA compensation limits, amateurism-based compensation limits. But Kavanaugh says, This case involves only a narrow subset of the NCAA's compensation rules, namely the rules restricting the education-related benefits. And he puts education-related in italics that student-athletes may receive, such as post-eligibility scholarships at graduate or vocational schools. The rest of the NCAA's compensation rules are not at issue here and therefore remain on the books. Those remaining compensation rules generally restrict student-athletes from receiving compensation or benefits from their colleges or playing sports. And those rules have also historically restricted student-athletes from receiving money from endorsement deals and the like. So he's taken a sideswipe there at this whole name, image, and likeness debate. And I'm guessing he's probably paid attention to it. And if he sees it the way that I do, he sees that the NCAA is not doing a whole lot. So he says that he is adding this conclusion concurring opinion, to underscore that the NCAA's remaining compensation laws also raise serious questions under the antitrust laws. And he says three uh, points warrant emphasis. And he says, first, the court does not address the legality of the NCAA's remaining compensation rule. So again, the majority very carefully limited their analysis and, the, and their thinking to only those restrictions that the injunction addressed. Second, although the court does not weigh in on the ultimate legality of the NCAA's remaining compensation rules, the court's decision establishes how any such rules should be analyzed going forward. And that is so important, that the rule of reason analysis is thorough vetting, uh, fact-based vetting, of the NCAA's justification for its anti-competitive compensation limits, amateurism-based compensation limits and eligibility rules, are going to be subject to a thorough and sifting fact-based analysis. And all this, he calls these stray comments from the Board of Regents' decision, which the NCAA has used as an immunity shield very successfully. In federal litigation saying, the U.S. Supreme Court said this in 1984, and you're bound by that. And a lot of federal courts have bought that, in part for the reasons that I identified in my episode on the judicial fealty to amateurism. I think that was episode number eight. And the NCAA has just been getting away with murder again, and I think Kavanaugh's calling him out on that. And then uh, third... The court stresses that the NCAA is not otherwise entitled to an exemption from antitrust laws, meaning that the NCAA's campaign for complete antitrust immunity is dead. It's over from the judiciary. Again, they can always go back to Congress. So basically what Kavanaugh is saying here structurally in terms of what the majority opinion does is that it doesn't address the compensation limits that have nothing to do with amateurism, including the value of athlete services themselves. Then you have an analytical framework, though, that through this rule of reason could lead to a successful challenge of those compensation limits that are not related to education, and that the NCAA can't hide behind an antitrust exemption, either an express one for outright antitrust immunity or a stealth one through this deferential abbreviated review or the quick look, both of which the NCAA advocated in the Austin case. and so. Then a Kavanaugh goes on and it says that this much is undisputed. So the NCAA acknowledges that it controls the market for college athletes, and that's when it's acting as a monopolist or a monopsonist. The NCAA concedes that its compensation rules are essentially price fixing. You're fixing the price of labor at a below market rate, meaning that if there were an open and free market for the value of the athlete's services, they would get paid more than the value of their athletic scholarship. And then Kavanaugh also. Also says that the NCAA essentially concedes that current athletes have no meaningful ability to negotiate with the NCAA over the compensation rules. And that's because these athletes are completely powerless in a system where nobody has their interests at heart and nobody is going to bat for them in system. Nobody. So in professional sports, the professional athletes have collective bargaining. And they've agreed to some sensible restrictions in the market that otherwise would be a violation of antitrust laws. But everybody agrees on them. So there's nobody who's going to challenge it because they're getting what they want. The athletes don't have that. They simply don't have that. And then Kavanaugh goes on uh, to say that the biggest thing I think that offended him, and this goes back to oral argument. And I talked about this at length when I was breaking down the oral argument. Justice Kavanaugh, in a really direct way, a very effective way, talked about how absurd and circular the NCAA's argument was in the rule of reason analysis when it invoked amateurism as a pro-competitive justification. What the NCAA was saying is that the reason that it has these compensation limits is that there is a preference in the market to watch athletes who are not being paid what they're worth. That, and that's, in essence, what the NCAA is saying. And he says that argument is circular and unpersuasive. The NCAA couches its arguments for not paying student-athletes in innocuous labels. And and that's a really important, the innocuous label is pretty innocuous, the way he phrased that. But I would say at outright fraudulent labels like amateurism and the collegiate model and the student-athlete. So they've gotten buy-in at the gut instinct level from Everybody up and down the in system stakeholder chain of command, but most importantly from consumers. And this is a consumer based analysis. We're looking at free markets and how they operate and whether they enhance or decrease consumer behavior and I'm sorry, consumer demand and consumer preference. So the NCAA's labels, what he's saying here is the labels that the NCAA attaches to its anti competitive behavior sound benign, but they are not. And he says the labels cannot disguise the reality. The NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. All of the restaurants in a region cannot come together to cut cooks' wages on the theory that customers prefer to eat food from low-paid cooks. Law firms cannot conspire to cabin lawyers' salaries in the name of providing legal services out of a love of the law. Hospitals cannot agree to cap nurses' income in order to create create a purer form of helping the sick and and more. And that's it. And the NCAA has been saying that the— inability to acknowledge the market value of these athletes and to pay them fair market value is something that everybody wants. Everybody likes that. And from an antitrust standpoint, that is a nonsensical position. And then he goes on to say quite bluntly, and this is really the heart of the matter. And this came through in four of the nine justices questioning an oral argument on March 31st. And that is, and this is a quote, price-fixing labor is price-fixing. Fixing labor. And price fixing labor is ordinarily a textbook antitrust problem because it extinguishes the free markets in which individuals can otherwise obtain fair compensation for their work. And that's really pretty much how Justice Kagan put it in her questions of Seth Waxman on March 31st. And then he goes on to say, The bottom line is that the NCAA and its member colleges are suppressing the pay of student-athletes who collectively generate billions of dollars in revenues for colleges every year. These enormous sums of money flow to seemingly everyone except the student-athletes, college presidents, athletics directors, coaches, conference commissioners, and NCAA executives take in six- and seven-figure salaries. Colleges build lavish new facilities. But the student-athletes who generate the revenues, many of whom are african American and from lower-income backgrounds end up with little or nothing. And then, I mean, that just says it all in a nutshell. And he cites, I'm, I was happy to see this too, he cited to some of the Amiki briefs, these Friends of the Court briefs, and for his comments on the racial component of the business model, he relied on the brief of African-American antitrust lawyers, which is a really good brief, by the way. Maybe I'll put up a link to it. And then... Kavanaugh goes on to say, but the business model of using unpaid student athletes to generate billions of dollars in revenue... For the colleges raises serious questions under the antitrust laws. In particular, it is highly questionable whether the NCAA and its member colleges can justify not paying student athletes a fair share of the revenues on the circular theory that the defining characteristic of college sports is that the colleges do not pay student athletes. Back to that the same issue he made just a few minutes ago. And if that asserted justification is unavailing, and we have said that it is unavailing, that doesn't gonna that's not gonna hold water with the US Supreme Court, it is not clear. How the NCAA can legally defend its remaining compensation rules. And so this goes back to the importance of how the court framed the analysis under antitrust laws. And what Kavanaugh is saying is, I don't know under this analysis how you're going to be able to defend your compensation limits that are not related to education. So uh, let's see, then Kavanaugh goes on to say, he he talks about some of the things that the tricky parts of having an open market, and he talks about the impact on non-revenue sports. He talks about Title IX. He talks about the possibility of collective bargaining. And remember, the professional sports have salary caps, and but they're agreed to through collective bargaining. But what would that business model. Basically, I think what he's saying here is what would a true professional business model, which which exists now in every way except for the fixed price of the labor below the, the fair market value for the labor. But if you have that kind of system, how does that impact the the other stakeholders in the context of higher education and those are important questions but they are not questions that are unanswerable or unsolvable you just won't have the NCAA paying a lot of attention to them because there's no benefit to them from looking at that kind of a system and then he makes a suggestion that these difficult questions could be resolved in other ways than litigation legislation would be one option collective bargaining might be another And he says, regardless of how those issues ultimately would be resolved, however, the NCAA's current compensation regime regime, raises serious questions under the antitrust laws. And then he goes on an encomium to, to college sports and how wonderful it is. But then he says... Those traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student-athletes who are not fairly compensated. Nowhere else in America can business get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate. And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be different. The NCAA is not above the law. And that's the last sentence of his concurring opinion. And what's important? So what's the impact of Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion? Well, it has no legal precedence, his opinions in that concurring opinion don't change the majority opinion or their legal analysis. He's just making some important observations about what the consequences of the court's analytical framework may be. And I think he's right about that. I think it's going to be difficult. You have to deal with this abandon issue that I've discussed. But in a future case where you don't have abandon in the way, if another circuit were to try to just go directly to the compensation limits then I think you could have a court that's really going to wrestle with whether or not just to open this whole market up. Because when you look at it just in terms of NCAA interest, it's easy to say, oh, no, 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 the sky's is falling and it's going to kill college sports forever. But when you do what you're supposed to do as judges and apply the law, the actual law, these compensation limits are indefensible. They're simply indefensible. And I think that Justice Kavanaugh has laid a really interesting pathway there that I'm sure has the NCAA and all the guys who are making uh, seven-figure salaries from the labor of these athletes, they are shivering in their boots. And they should be. They absolutely should be. And the fact that it's taken this long to get to this point is really a testament to the power that the NCAA has. And I want to I wanna speak to that a little bit because you would think now, having the United States Supreme Court in a unanimous decision say, NCAA, you're not special. You don't get special treatment. You don't get to hide behind amateurism to avoid complying with federal laws that require free competition and free markets and open and free economic liberty. You, you can't hide anymore. You have to justify your compensation limits in a fact-based way where they're being challenged in the adversary system. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. And then what Justice Kavanaugh is saying is that you are basically exploiting the hell out of these kids and you are in a position now where it's going to be really hard for you to justify that. You would think that because that comes from the United States Supreme Court, that the NCAA would have a moment of introspection, that the Power Five conference commissioners would have a moment of introspection, that the Power Five presidents and chancellors would have a moment of introspection. But it didn't take Mark Emmert long and his spin doctors and his public relations people to issue this Press release on the NCAA website, and it's let's see, it's timed at 11:39 a.m. It's titled NCAA statement on U.S. Supreme Court decision, and here is what it says: While today's decision preserves the lower court ruling, it also reaffirms the NCAA's authority to adopt reasonable rules, and repeatedly notes that the NCAA remains free to articulate. What are and are not truly educational benefits consistent with the NCAA's mission to support student-athletes? And then there's a quote from Emmert. Emmert says, Even though the decision does not directly address name, image, and likeness, the NCAA remains committed to supporting nil benefits for student-athletes. And then he says, additionally, we remain committed to working with Congress to chart a path forward, which is a point the Supreme Court expressly stated in its ruling. So that's what the NCAA and Mark Emmert took from this unanimous historic Supreme Court ruling that, oh, yeah, well, maybe we can deal with some of this stuff in Congress. The level of denial that sits underneath that statement is just breathtaking. And this just goes to show you that the NCAA believes that it is above the law, operates as if it is above the law, and nobody's going to tell it that it isn't above the law, including the United States Supreme Court. The NCAA doesn't give a damn. So they're going to go merrily along their way. You may get an article or two or something that tries to pretend that they have respect for the rule of law. But they're going to go back and do everything in their power to preserve their multi-billion dollar uh, industry that is based on low cost fixed labor in a market that they absolutely control through monopolistic and monopsonistic power. It's un-American. In my, some of my early episodes and in a lot of my blog posts, I talked about the NCAA's market behavior and their business model as un-American. And the United States Supreme Court has essentially said that. And you don't have to be a legal scholar or economist or an antitrust expert. You just have to trust what you see. And one of the things, and I think this may be the most important component of Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion, and that is that in the halls of Congress for the athletes' rights movement and the people who support it, in the court of public opinion, the people who have been gaslighted for decades now and have been afraid to speak truth to power now have permission to do so. This concurring opinion gives voice to the members of Congress who want to support the Athletes' Bill of Rights because they know it's the right thing to do. Or the Murphy-Sanders Bill that says, yes, these guys are employees. They're not students primarily. They are employees and they're very lucrative employees bringing in a ton of money for the institution's benefits. Those arguments, which have been shouted down by NCAA propaganda, NCAA lobbyists, NCAA lawyers, and an NCAA-friendly media, both the mainstream media and the sports media, those voices don't have the same credibility that they had 24 hours ago. In these debates in Congress, and this played out in clear, stark form in the June 9th hearing in the Commerce Committee, The proponents, the Roger Wickers, the Jerry Morans, the Ted Cruz's, the Lindsey Graham's, the Lamar Alexander's, those guys, they can no longer shout down Richard Blumenthal and Cory Booker and Chris Murphy and anyone else who supports the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And when they try to do it, all they have to do is read from Justice Kavanaugh's opinion. So I think, at least at the symbolic level, it remains to be seen. And I got to tell you, the NCAA is not going anywhere. And they've got their plan B, their plan C, and their plan D. We don't know what those are right now. And this whole nil debate has fallen apart on them because they didn't get what they wanted from the Senate on preemption. But we don't know what those are. But you can rest assured that the NCAA and their silk-stocking lawyers who are paid by the labors of elite Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American, they're funding the weapons that are being used against them in this war. And that's another injustice that didn't come up. It wasn't in the record. But that's a component of this whole exploitation model. So they're taking all that money. They're taking these kids money and they're just going to double down on their influence peddling and in their coercive political campaign and in their public relations propaganda to try to make this go away. And this isn't some guy spouting off on a sports talk radio show. This isn't an op-ed. This isn't a a podcast person like me talking about the exploitation model of big-time college sports. This is the United States Supreme Court. And they had the final say. And in their final say, they said unanimously, NCAA, you're not special. You have to play by the same rules. And you better watch your back because there could be a case coming down the pike that could put you out of business. And that wouldn't be a bad thing. So you would hope that this opinion, this decision would lead to some really big picture thinking about what college sports could look like, what a fair, equitable model could look like. And maybe, just maybe, this opinion and Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence will give enough energy to the athletes' rights voices to, that they can say, look, we need to start from scratch here and just do a holistic examination of big-time college sports, not unlike the 1929 Carnegie Report. And remember, in 2019, Donna Shalala, in a bipartisan bill, introduced a proposal that essentially had the same philosophy, and there was going to be a commission, but it was going to have subpoena power, and those subpoenas were going to the NCAA. So there's a lot that needs to be done here. And then the other thing that people haven't talked about, two things, actually. One is that the executive branch at the federal level has enormous power, and they could bring some pressure to bear on the NCAA just to keep it honest. And we haven't seen that yet, really, except for the intervention in the Austin suit through the Solicitor General's office, and I'm glad they did that. And I think that really influenced this case and really helped orient the justices to the kind of the floor being this affirmance of the Ninth Circuit opinion. So that was good, but there's a lot more that the federal government could do. The other thing in looking at the NCAA strategies and where it's thinking about its nil campaign and preserving its compensation limits through congressional action. That's where they're stuck now, I think. You have to remember that there are midterm elections coming up now in just over a year. They're right around the corner. And the Republicans could take back the Senate. Who knows? But if they do, then it's a whole new ballgame. So we always have to view this through the lens of Politics And unfortunately, this has become a partisan political issue. I've spoken and written at length about that. And that's just the reality of life in the fast lane in America when you're going up against these behemoth corporate interests. And the NCAA is a behemoth corporate interest. And it is surrounded by other behemoth corporate interests. And that's a tough battle. That's a really tough battle. But I think the terms of the debate may be a little bit different now, and I think that's a really good thing. So in uh, future episodes, I am going to talk in more detail uh, as I have the opportunity to really digest the legal analysis and and how the court looked at this rule of reason, how it applied it, how it interpreted the Ninth Circuit opinion, all those things, to talk a little more intelligently about what I think— the pathways may be going forward to chipping away further at the NCAA's exploitative amateurism-based compensation limits. So with that, I'm going to sign off, and uh, thank you so much for joining. And it's always an honor and privilege to have you, and I hope to see you again for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.